0: I want to ask you a question. What brings significance to your life? So if you you're laying on your deathbed, what is the crown jewel of your existence in this life? What is it that the years that you have had on this earth, the people that you've impacted, the the whatever the Uh, all of the things that have come in and out and through your life, what is it that is most significant? You know, a few weeks ago, the Super Bowl was played. And it struck me just how much a game can mean to people. And although I recognize the tremendous amount of effort that it would take to achieve that level of success and, and the, the small percentage of people on earth that would ever be able to experience something like winning a Super Bowl or getting to a Super Bowl or whatever the case may be, Ladies and gentlemen, it is a game. It is a game. But what about us? I thought about what what would you answer? I thought about your faces. I thought about I thought about what comes to your mind. I thought about what would be the most common response to that question in this room would it be that I've been a faithful spouse or that I've been a good mom or a good dad is that the most significant thing about you would it be that I was a good provider That I was a church goer. Maybe even that I was a Christian. You know the more that I meditate on. These spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. And the good works that God has done for us. The more and more I see the incredible grace of God. In just the way that. Christ didn't just deliver us from condemnation and wrath and judgment. He didn't just forgive all of our sins. He didn't just adopt us into his family. He did all those things, but more than that, he he poured grace out upon our lives through the Holy Spirit, and he gifted us with ministries and with Abilities and opportunities that we might make an eternal difference. Here's what I realize. I realize that in Christ, we have been delivered from wasting our lives. But have we? Certainly Christ has done his part. You see, here's how this is going to go down, is that every saved person in this room is going to stand before the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus is going to test everything about our lives, the Bible says, by fire, according to His priorities. And the things that aren't according to His priorities, they're all going to burn up. And the things that will remain, the precious things the Bible says. Those aren't going to be the things that we held dear. If there's anything left, it'll be the things that he holds dear. See, they're going to be according to his priorities, not ours. So if you answer the question, what is the most significant thing about you according to what you think That's a problem. See, the question that I ask myself is, according to Scripture, for example, Ephesians 2.10, that says that we're God's workmanship, created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are those good works? Are they the things that you thought of to answer the question? Because God didn't just save you to give you the freedom to answer that question any way you want to answer it. Remember, in order to be saved, you declare Him to be Lord. And so if He's Lord, then He's the one calling the shots. Am I missing something? So if He's calling the shots... The Bible says that he's prepared good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. so wouldn't it be incumbent upon us to make absolutely sure that we don't miss what those good works are? I think so. I think so. So if you get your listening guide out, we're we're looking at this church in Corinth. This church is filled with Christians, but they're they're broken, they're fractured, they 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 have an uh, an identity crisis. They 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 don't know who they are in Christ. There's and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the things you notice maybe as we've studied. For the last eight months in First Corinthians, there's no there's no elders in Corinth. you notice that? There's a leadership vacuum. That's a good reminder of what happens when there's no god ordained leadership and things just get out of hand, they start going. Crazy. And so these Corinthians, they're they're very zealous people. They're they're very the church is filled with zeal. It's filled with lots of talented, gifted people. But things are not as they ought to be. And so the first thing we want to see is the enemy of edification is competition. And we've talked about this multiple times over the last couple of months in particular about the danger of competition and how our human tendency is to, is to turn everything into some sort of competition, and it's, it's terribly spiritually dangerous because competition causes us to be very self-focused. So look at verse 26. That's where we left off last week. Verse 26 Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Well, how is it then, brethren? See, he's not talking to lost people. He says, how is it then? So you can see that what he's about to say is, how can this be true? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So what's going on here is that Everyone is showing up to church services and they all have their own thing going and they're all trying to promote their own agenda and they're all trying to show their own giftedness and it's creating just an environment of total chaos. And we need to realize that the minute that we approach church from the standpoint of building up ourselves, we banish the Holy Spirit from the equation. The church, you you never come to church to build yourself up. You will get built up if you come to church for the right motivation. But you will never be built up if you come to build yourself up. You see, remember back in in, in the same chapter, verse 12... He said, even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. That when you seek to excel, it's always in the context of the encouragement, the building up. The word edification means to build up, the building up of the church. So every time we come to church... Here's what we've said. We should show up expecting either opportunity or confirmation. Opportunity or confirmation. That we're we're on the lookout for those two things. Opportunity to build up the church. Confirmation that we're... Building up the church, that we're being successful in building up the church. Those two things are the things that we're searching for every time we come into this place. We always approach worship by asking the, the question, what can I do to build up this body? What can I do to strengthen this family? Who can I encourage? Who can I serve? Who can I be a blessing to? You don't come here. Wondering what's in it for you. That's why some people never grow. That's why your life is spiritually dormant. Because you block anything from occurring in you before you ever walk through the door. Every time you think about what you want or what you like or what you expect or what you desire or whatever the case may be. Before you come in here, you deny God the opportunity to work in your life. No. In a corporate worship setting, according to everything the Bible teaches about it, it's about the congregation as a whole. It always takes precedence over individual Needs or preferences or likes or desires or whatever the case may be. Look at verse 27. If if anyone speaks in a tongue or a foreign language that they, they are not trained to speak in, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. So let somebody interpret the fact that this is genuine and what's going on. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if there's nobody to verify that the gift is in fact operating correctly, then don't say anything. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Now here's what 27, 28, and 29 remind us of that no matter what our spiritual gifts are, they're confirmed by other members of the family. You notice that whenever what Paul is trying to get through to them is that you do not decide what your spiritual gifts are. That's not how that works. You might have some idea of what they may be. You definitely are uh, the initiator in the discovery of what they are because you take the first step. To to enter into service, to enter into uh, doing something. But the way that you know that you're accomplishing what you set out to accomplish is if other people in the body confirm that. You see, the only way you can know that you're a good teacher is if other people are being fed by your teaching. You can't decide, you know, I think I'm really good. That's not how that works. You see, it has to be confirmed, and it's confirmed by other members in the the body. It's not confirmed by, oh, well, I heard something, and so that's, you know, whatever Pastor Tony said, he must be talking about me. No, wrong. I mean, I might be, but I might not be. Other people confirm our gifts Verse 30, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let him keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying in verse 30 that if somebody is prophesying, if somebody is speaking the Word of God according to what God's already spoken... And you're listening, and then suddenly you get a word from the Lord. You don't walk up and tap them on the shoulder and say, excuse me, I got a word from the Lord, and then start going. You understand? You got to wait until the appropriate time. So there's not confusion in what's going on. So if people are prophesying, they do it one by one. Not all at the same time where there's confusion because the point is very clear in verse 31 at the end that all may learn and all may be encouraged. You see, God wants to speak to his people and he wants to speak to his people corporately and individually and he does that in a very orderly fashion. And so you, you have to be, I mean, this isn't, this is simple for us because we do this. But it's clearly not simple for everybody. And as I said last week, some of you come from backgrounds or have family members that are still in church settings that are the opposite of these verses. And when he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, what he means is that you can't be speaking And then say, well, I was just out of control. No. That we're in control. We're in control. We're not out of control. It's subject to the prophets. You can't say, well, I couldn't help myself. I just started speaking and then I just erupted into some kind of crazy nonsense because God took control of me. No. No. And over the last several weeks, so many of you have sent me, you know, you know, videos and you know just examples of all the crazy things that go on out there. And and you know it's it's hard sometimes to look at those things and not laugh. But it's not funny. It's sad. It's sad because the Bible is so clear. So clear. For God's not the author of confusion, verse 33, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, I know what you've been waiting for. So let's just address the elephant in the room, shall we? Verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches, (laughs) for they're not permitted to speak, but they're to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak or for women to speak in the church. Well, I could have some fun with this. Now, I'm going to be honest. I had a lot of thoughts about this over the last couple of months. I thought a lot of things I probably shouldn't have thought. I'm just confessing. But it really doesn't matter what I thought or what I think. It matters what God says. So let's think about this together. First of all, if you take a verse out of context, you're left. if you take the text out, you're left with a con, right? That's right. So this is a corrective letter written to the church at Corinth. It's instructive for us. It is relevant for us. But it's also in the context that it is given. So what have we learned in the previous 13 chapters about the church at Corinth? Well, just a snapshot would be they're worldly, they're divisive, they're opinionated, they're cliquish, they're carnal, they're strife-ridden, they're argumentative, they're puffed up, they're self-glorifying. They're fornicating, lusting after evil things, idolatrous, gluttonous, drunken, and stingy towards the poor. That's just a short list. So here's my question Should what they do or what they're doing be the model for the way we should conduct things in church? Would that make sense in any arena? I don't think it would. We, we would not want to model ourselves after the Corinthians, would we? So we want to ask ourselves, well, what's going on here? Well, if you want to know what God's Word is saying, the first thing you got to know is, well, what is God's Word already said? And one thing that we know for sure about the Bible is that contrary to what anybody would say, the Bible is pro-woman. See, Paul affirms, for example, Priscilla when she gives Apollos a theology lesson in the book of Acts chapter 18. Remember that? Paul entrusts Phoebe to deliver the book of Romans when he sent it to Rome. Every single one of the one another scriptures, commands in the Bible are gender neutral in the Greek. In the Old Testament, for example... Deborah gave wisdom to Israel in the book of Judges. We studied through the book of Judges. In Exodus 15, Miriam's song was given to edify and strengthen Israel. And in the immediate context of the New Testament, we know women prophesied publicly in the church in Acts 2 and in Acts 17. And we know in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul affirmed women prophesying in the church, and he did so in Romans chapter 15. So the question is, does this text command that women cannot speak in church? Well, why would Paul in this very book, chapter 11, verse 5, give direction to women who pray and prophesy in public gatherings? Why would he do that? See, some people say that this text teaches that women should only speak up at home. I've heard people say that. Well, you know, that's super helpful because all New Testament churches met in homes, so have that one. Look at the scripture again. Look at verse 34. Does it say let women keep silent? No, it says let your, your women keep silent, your women. You see, there's a situation, obviously, that's occurring in Corinth. Every time the church gathers, there's a lot of situations as we've seen, but Paul's addressing some situation that's going on And what I think this clearly teaches, based on what we've learned as we've studied through the, this book, is that there's some confusion going on with the behavior of the women in this congregation when they gather together. And I think what it's referencing is the fact that Paul is discouraging this cultural norm that's developed here where he's already addressed this in the book see I just went back and studied everything that we've already we know what was going on so those things will help us understand what is going on that he's talking about and if you go back and you read through it what you see is one of the preeminent problems in Corinth is Females spending time with men that aren't their husbands and husbands spending time with females that aren't their wives. And so the context of this immediate conversation is church gatherings, right? Correct. So starting back in verse 29, Paul's talking about People speaking up to judge prophecies since such an activity would have been subservient to male headship in the church if females were yelling out and debating and arguing over whether or not something should have been said or could have been said or would have been said. But I think the more telling thing is that we've already been made well aware that fidelity in marriage is a big issue in Corinth. Let me remind you, if we back up to chapter 7, Paul said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, that could be taken way out of context, right? But you have to know what he's talking about. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So clearly there was some craziness going on, right? Yes, and if we back up even further and we go to chapter 5, it's actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you so perverted such that it's not even named among the Gentiles that a man would have his father's wife. I'm not going to elaborate on this. I'm just simply saying... All the speaking in tongues and the craziness with the gifts, that was not the wildest thing going on in Corinth. And so what you have is, you have you have all of this uh, debating going on. You can, you can almost, I can picture the scenario where you have uh, women coming into the church and And, uh, you know, asking questions of the men that they think are super spiritual or debating with men about these issues of whether or not something is uh, correct or authentic or real or not real or whatever the case may be. And it was all of this uh, mingling around with people that you weren't married to that was creating all sorts of problems. And so Paul's solution to the whole thing is, well, why don't you just zip it? Now, here's the thing. You say to yourself, well, why didn't Paul just, why didn't Paul tell the men not to speak in church? Well, because men have to prophesy in the church. We have to. Women do too. But not in the form that I'm doing right now. And so somebody had to be quiet. So who was it? The only ones who could. I don't think it's that complicated. Now, if you disagree with me, that's fine. It's, I'm sure, not the only thing you're wrong about. (laughs) Amen. Verse 36. Now, remember, also, look at what he says just following this. Or did the Word of God come originally from you? You see? That's another indication to me of this uh, arguing about Theological things. Did it come from you or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul acknowledging that these words that the Holy Spirit is speaking through him are the words of God. So... The true test of all things spiritual is always the Bible. Always. Not our opinion or not what seems to be to us. Or and what happens is when you deviate from this principle, this is where all the chaotic things that were happening in the church at Corinth found their traction. That, and I believe, the fact that there was nobody there anointed by God to say, hey, stop this. This isn't of God. We don't need to be doing this. See, everything that Paul says in in chapter 14 is meant for believers to experience orderly worship in a way that focuses on Christ and others, not on self. Everything. So the true test of anything spiritual is always the Bible. Then 38, but if anyone is ignorant, well, let him be ignorant. Man, I'm quoting that verse. I'm like, that might not be my life verse, but it's like second. Right behind when Nehemiah slapped them and pulled their hair. Verse 39, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. And so those are just a culmination of all the conversation that we had last week that centered around uh, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues and how it Well, they're meant to be used to edify the body. Next week, we'll get into a a deep conversation about gifts in general and all the spiritual gifts in the Bible and how we might approach them and discover them and delight in them and so on and so forth. But what we want to do now is we want to just we want to ask ourselves: Well, now, what is our? How do we? How do we walk away from? 1 Corinthians 14. What's the takeaway? And I believe that the takeaway from this chapter is would be rightly represented by a heart that says, Lord, I'm going to evaluate my motives in worship. I'm going to evaluate my motives in worship. That the best and most God-honoring response to his commands is to do things outwardly that reflect what we are believing and thinking inwardly. In other words, sincerity as opposed to hypocrisy. That we wouldn't be doing wrong things outwardly promoted by wrong motivations, but that we also wouldn't be doing right things outwardly with hidden secret wrong motivations inwardly. You see that both would be unacceptable to God and should be unacceptable to to us. See, this is what it means to serve God from your heart, to serve God from the, the, the core of who you are. See for most Christians when it comes to discovering our part in the work of God's kingdom we ask the wrong question. I want to give you some things to think about today. You'll have a whole week to meditate on to prepare you for the conversation we'll have next Sunday. Because I think it would be dangerous on our part to just rush in to the conversation next Sunday without preparation. So I'm going to give you a week to think about these things. We ask the wrong question. We ask questions like, well, what can I do for God? That's the wrong question. That's a self-centered question. It sounds good to your flesh, but it's at its heart, it's self-centered. The question we should be asking should be a God-centered question. We should ask the question, what does God want to do through me? What is it that God wants to do through me? See, if we seek the gifts of the Spirit... Without seeking the Holy Spirit Himself, we're always going to end up self-focused. You cannot have a conversation about spiritual gifts without first having an understanding of who the Holy Spirit Himself is. That the discovery of spiritual gifts comes through the desire to draw close to the Holy Spirit Himself. The desire to have Him work mightily in our lives. See, we have to understand that there's no gifts apart from an intimate relationship with the giver of the gifts, they're spiritual gifts. So this is a good one for you to think about for the next week. For a Christian, faith is not asking for what we don't have but making use of what God says we already possess. I want you to think about how many times in your life you've confused faith as some activity whereby you seek after something that you don't have, but that you want to possess. Like that faith is a mechanism to get the things from God that you want. I think that's a wrong way to approach it. Your faith this morning if we were going to measure each of our faith individually, our faith would be measured by the degree we are utilizing what God's already given us in Christ. That's faith. That's faith. So do you realize what the implication of that is? What does that mean for the person who's not Doing anything or utilizing anything. I'll let you consider that. See, the Bible says that at the moment of salvation, every born-again Christian becomes a new creation, Second Corinthians five, seventeen, right? The Bible says that, behold, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. All things have become new. All things have become new. Well, what does this mean? Well, it means that you've been forgiven of your sin and cleansed of all unrighteousness. It means that. It means that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It means that. It means that you've been adopted into God's family. It means that. But it also means that you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. It means that. And so to be a Christian is to have new life spiritually. New life spiritually. A new relationship with God. You relate to God in a, in a new way, in a way that as, a, as an unreconciled person, you could never relate to God the way that you can in Christ. That those two things are incompatible. They're as far away as things could be from one another. So there's a new relationship with God. There's a new power to serve God and to, to accomplish things and to make an impact. So remember where we started this morning. If you're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which He's pre- prepared beforehand. That you should walk in them. See, consider chapter 12 verse 17. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. This verse right here eliminates all of our excuses. Some of you have spent the last 10 minutes thinking about all the things that you do for God outside of the church. Outside, disconnected from the body. Yourself justifying Let the Word of God minister to your heart this morning. The manifestation of the Spirit. You know what that means? That means that the Spirit will reveal Himself and His activity in you. That's what it means. Are you ready for Him to do that? Are you open to the Spirit of God manifesting Himself in your life? There's the promise right there. To each one. No one is excluded. You don't have to achieve some level of Christianity to, uh, you know, to qualify. No, this is every one of us. The problem's not with the Spirit. The problem is with our willingness. Are you willing? Are you open? Do you desire the Holy Spirit to be active in your life? That's the question. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. No one's overlooked. For the profit of all. 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 There's some of you in this room that we'll talk more about next week. That use your spiritual gifts outside the body. But you do so to greatly enhance the health of of the body that you see not every spiritual gift is exclusively utilized within the context of these walls or on this particular piece of property but they are utilized to build up the body you understand we'll we'll talk all about this next week but it's for the profit of all it's the corporate dimension to everything that God does in our lives See, this is what you got to understand about God. God is a family-oriented God. That, If you want to know who he is, if you want to know what makes him tick, family makes him tick. That's what he's all about. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what for sure the whole New Testament is about. It's about how the family operates in the power of Jesus for the glory of God. See, the big news this morning is the Holy Spirit Himself has gifted you. That's the big news. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be zero excuses. You won't say a word. You will not speak a word. You've been gifted. God's been clear. Shouldn't this be exciting? Shouldn't it? Why do you all look like you're at a funeral right now? I know what people look like at funerals better than anybody in the world. So I know. You should be pumped right now. Regardless of what's going on in your life right now, there's still breath in your lungs to adjust, to change, to move, to shift. That tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. That God has gifted His children. See, the same Spirit, the Bible teaches, that manifested Himself in the life of Jesus And in the early believers in the book of Acts. Has been given to us to work in us. That is some seriously good news. So if you open your life to him. Here's the promise of scripture. He will manifest himself in your life. For the edification of all wow, wow, what could I have possibly said more exciting than that? That regardless of how many days you've lived on this earth, that's true right now. For today, for tomorrow, and for every day that you have to come. Two final questions to meditate on. Number one, am I seeking my own to do good things for God? Am I seeking on my own to do good things for God? Please, do not come to church next Sunday. Boy, that could be taken out of context. I always think with a little creative editing, boy, you could sink me. Please don't come to church next Sunday with a desire to do good things for God. On your own. Please don't do that. It'll be a disaster. And number two, ask this question Do I need to make adjustments in how I relate to the Holy Spirit in my life? Do I? I wonder. It's so amazing to me as I pray for you the things that God puts on my heart and the things that I see in my mind. I'm a very visual person, so when I pray for you, I, I, I imagine I'm, I'm going through the pews. I see your faces. I know where you sit. I know what you look like, and I see you, and I'm going. And I'm praying for you. And so I'm seeing you and I'm seeing other things. And here's what I I feel like I'm seeing I feel like I'm seeing some of you that up until this point in your life, you've been resistant to adjust in how you relate to the Holy Spirit. And here's why you're afraid. You're afraid. You're afraid of what he might do. And I just want to encourage you. Don't don't be afraid. I'm not saying that it's not scary. It is. But be motivated by a greater fear. Instead of fearing the Holy Spirit... We are standing before Jesus empty-handed. Let's stand and bow our heads.